1: Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with Martin Collins, a curator of space satellites at the Smithsonian, about his really interesting new book called A Telephone for the World, Iridium, Motorola, and the Making of a Global Age. It was published last year by Johns Hopkins University Press. The vast majority of us probably take it for granted that we can pick up our cell phones and call people on the other side of the planet. But not too long ago, this was a distant dream. A Telephone for the World examines how Motorola tried and failed to turn that dream into a reality in the 1990s. The project was called Iridium. The book examines a truly fascinating case study of how American business navigated neoliberalism, the rise of Japan, the end of the Cold War, and even the global as a way of life. The book should interest business historians, historians of technology, communication scholars, and anyone who wants to know more about the mechanics of globalization. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Martin Collins, author of A Telephone for the World. Thanks for joining us today, Martin.
2: Uh, Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, I I really enjoyed the book. Uh, It's filled with insights about many topics that I care deeply about, and so I'm excited that uh, you're on the show. So, just to get started we'd like to ask our guests how they ended up becoming historians
2: uh well i think probably easier to answer not how i became a historian but my trajectory as a historian um I initially um, was primarily focused on the issue of uh, the U.S. role in the Cold War, uh, primarily seen from a within-the-U.S. perspective with a special emphasis on the role of science and technology, and particularly the the relationship of scientific and technical knowledge to politics. Uh, So my first book was on the um, uh, the U.S. Air Force and the RAND Corporation relationship and the broader set of issues about how one coordinated, uh, uh, relied on, developed science and technical knowledge uh, to apply to the special sort of post-war circumstances and how the military, particularly the Air Force, Um, uh, sought to kind of incorporate these types of knowledge into its own sort of conceptions of a a post-war world in which uh, innovation, science and technical innovation, uh, were kind of critical elements uh, and how that sort of played into the political restructuring of the United States in that time period. So from that sort of uh, kind of basis, uh, you know, I thought about... um, uh, primarily sort of issues of kind of U.S. culture, uh, knowledge, and uh, the scientific and technical realm, uh, and how it kind of related particularly into large-scale technical systems. And that was kind of the initial sort of framing that I brought to the the Telephone for the World book. Um, and as I note in the introduction of that book, uh, I was, you know, kind of initially thinking that I wanted to take that kind of early Cold War template about the role of developing large technical systems and their political meaning and apply that to the uh, end of the Cold War and and post-Cold War moment. Um, But I saw that the set of issues as I got into it was uh, much broader than that kind of framing, and I wanted to kind of then explore what it meant uh, for a multinational corporation uh who was primarily that was primarily um working within the scientific and sort of technological framework uh how they were sort of approaching what the 1980s meant what the 1990s meant and it was sort of through that that i saw that the category of globalization uh, that we can talk about more was the was the kind of critical lens through which to kind of look at the story that i wanted to tell
1: great You tell a really interesting story, um, uh, a story that you've already kind of alluded to about the history of Iridium. Um, And at one point you even call it Hollywood um, in terms of uh, the the narrative. So how does this story begin uh, and what made the story so dramatic?
2: Well, the, the, I, I, you know, there are always sort of multiple beginning points, right? I mean, uh, w- one of the critical ones, of course, is to think about the timing of this narrative. Uh, as I point out in the book, uh, it really begins towards the end of the 1980s as Motorola, um, which at that time was fundamentally a commercially oriented multinational Fortune 500 company of its primary products for semiconductors and beginning to get into the, the cell phone market and other kinds of radio products. Um, but the part of the corporation that is center, central to my story is the um, uh, defense unit within Uh, within Motorola, which was about 10% of its business. And at that moment in the 1980s, after the Reagan buildup in national security funding in the early to mid-1980s, the Cold War budgets were beginning to decline, and that led Motorola to think about... Uh, uh, how do you reorient or at least the people in this national security division, how do they begin to kind of reorient themselves to a world in which their funding profile was substantially less? Um, And also, you know, recognizing as the larger body of Motorola's effort indicated uh, that, you know, what was emerging was this larger market-oriented neoliberal ideological world, and they began to see their future not in continuing to kind of pursue military projects, but to pursue commercial projects within this new framework that had emerged through the 70s and especially in the 1980s. So the way that the story begins, you know, as a kind of hook to take off from that context, Uh, is the apocryphal uh, 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 story that I share in the book of one of the inventors of the iridium system going on a vacation uh, with his spouse. Um, and the spouse, who is a real estate agent, uh, saying, well, you know, I'd really like to be able to conduct business from a beach in the Caribbean. You know, is doing all this wonderful stuff with cell phones. Why can't I be able to, you know, pick up a phone, a cell phone, and just call any place that I want to, to do my work? Uh, that will sound a little bit peculiar to modern audiences in the sense that, you know, at that time period uh, in the late 1980s, uh, cell phone coverage was highly limited to major metropolitan areas, right? So we don't have this kind of ability uh, when we're almost off any place in the planet to use our cell phone and call some, someone uh you know kind of located in a geographic region so it was sort of very it's
1: hard to believe
2: yeah it's so it's (laughs) i mean it's the the transition of course in this stuff is tremendous um but that you know that's the kind of technological context so it was presumably from this apocryphal sort of seed that led this inventor and a couple of his colleagues to begin to think about a more global satellite based system that came to be called iridium um but as as I develop in the book, I mean the 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 you know the deeper narrative is this one about the the beginning uh, diminishment of, of Cold War military budgets, uh, which would impact this national security unit at Motorola, and this emerging condition of of kind of neoliberal market oriented uh, developments that seem much more promising. Uh, for the kinds of skills and technical understandings that this group at Motorola had. So it was really kind of a, how do we survive uh, as a unit within this larger corporation? How do we use, as people who worked within this military uh, context, our own skill sets that we might insert into a commercial or market-oriented context uh, and create a very sort of different vision of ourselves in a different place for us in this new market order.
1: Mm. And the book deals with a really recent uh, historical um, narrative. Uh, you know, you go through the, the from the 1980s into the early 2000s. Um, can you say something about um, the process of doing such recent history? Um, you know, the 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 obstacles, the challenges yeah
2: it's, well i mean there's sort of yes i am uh, so i mean the, the the main thing right is is you know uh, you know is the is the fundamental sort of hole in the historiography about globalization in the late 20th century right And that and that hole in the histo- historiography is to understand in some deep detailed sense how multinational corporations responded and were part of this condition that we call uh, late 20th century globalization, right? Um, Under the best of circumstances, it's a challenge to get hold of corporate material, primary corporate source materials to do this kind of history. Uh, so I was, I was aided by sort of, you know, one serendipitous thing uh, and one methodological thing that I'd used previously. And the serendipitous thing was you had this, you know, this dramatic kind of public unveiling of this effort by Motorola and Iridium. Um, uh you know that has this wonderful public arc that you sort of highlighted by mentioning the word sort of hollywood to it right in terms of mm-hmm. its uh, uh appeal in a kind of public narrative sense um, and uh but after all of that the corporation almost immediately after it launched into service in late 1998. Uh, began to have its you know, you know financial fortunes and prospects for success uh, undermined, uh, and they went into bankruptcy in 1999. Uh, and it just so happened that, that uh, in the year 1998, um, as a curator at a museum, one of the things I wanted to begin to be able to do was to tell the kinds of stories that were coming out of the 80s and 90s with respect to satellite communications. So I had gone to Motorola in 97 or something uh, to ask whether I could get one of these satellites for the museum and add it to our collection. Um, And we eventually came to an agreement on that. And um, they donated a satellite uh, to the museum in 1998. Uh, so I had a set of connections with Motorola and with Iridium um, at the moment when the corporation Iridium began to founder and eventually collapse and go into bankruptcy. Um, so I went to some of the folks that I knew at Iridium and said, "You know, I'd really like to tell the story. I think there's something deeply interesting in this from a you know historical sense of understanding the late 20th century." Um, but if I'm going to do that, I need to have access to records. And I went and made this request after they went into bankruptcy, and there was a window of a few months where they weren't sure what was going to happen with the bankruptcy, uh, and they thought maybe just this thing was going to fall apart, and you know there would you know this, they would just disappear, right? Uh, which is not what you know, what happened, and I kind of sketched that out in the book, uh, but, but arriving at that fortuitous moment, I said, well, you know, can I have records, and they basically said yes, right, so they allowed me to go into a office building that was, you know, fundamentally empty, boxes strewn all over the place, and I just did a ton of photocopy, and so I had myself a core archive for doing this. The other part of it was that I had used in prior historical projects was I, since I worked, rel- you know, in relatively recent history, um was to use oral history interviews and the and the book was fundamentally aided by not only having this primary document uh, set of uh, uh resources uh but also to complement that uh, oral history interviews with the actors to kind of fill in the interstices uh of how one might tell the story
1: that in itself is a really interesting story and it says a lot about the uh the limits of Doing recent history, um, basically your opening was a failed company. Yes. <laughs> uh, so you know, in a certain sense, I guess, um, doing recent history, um, the records that are going to be more available are the country, the companies that don't succeed, uh, which is an interesting uh, feature of uh, of doing recent history.
2: Yeah. And I mean, and and also, you know, the legal environment has become more restrictive in the sense that you know corporations tend to see archives as a liability rather than an asset, mm. um, and so you know, there's the, all the, all the incentives in terms of having that primary. Uh, reference material, primary source material from corporations is all on the side of kind of destruction or limiting access. So it's very hard to do this kind of of, of histories um, and, and especially, uh, you know, kind of given the sen- central role of business in American life uh, since its inception. Uh, it really uh, kind of creates this space in which we are missing a significant uh um, set of issues that attach to american history
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and for the historian, all of those uh, destroyed records or re- restricted records just uh, it makes me very sad uh, so another moment that you situate your story in is the the rise of Japan, the economic rise of Japan, and you look at how um, you know people at Motorola were responding to the the, this um, economic rise um can you say something about what that encounter looked like and how american um, uh, businesses understood japan and how it just fundamentally um, changed american business itself
2: well i mean it's i mean it's i mean there there's a kind of macro level right in the sense that. you know you're 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 still in the so we're, we're talking specifically about the late 1970s into the early 1980s with that kind of uh, perception of japan of uh, as having kind of learned um, uh, a whole set of approaches to kind of manufacturing for the consumer market uh, in particular um, we're beginning to have a major sort of impact on the larger international economic order and Japan's sort of ascension as a kind of critical actor in that order, um, uh, impinging on uh, US preeminence, uh, you know, that had been assumed from the 50s and 60s and into the early 1970s before events like the oil shocks and, and all of that began to kind of undermine uh, the US position. Um, so, you know, there, there is that sort of large scale thing where there was this general perception where Japan was becoming an economic and technological juggernaut, um, able to outperform the United States uh, that required, you know, policy and governmental responses to it, roughly equivalent to our sense of, of challenge uh, affected by the Cold War when we were thinking about the USSR and, and China, right, that these were uh, of such a scale that these were kind of momentous in terms of the U.S. sense of itself uh, as a world power. Uh, and then on the, you know, kind of on a level below that is the question, well, what exactly were these capabilities that Japan was developing, right? Right. Um, you know, at that level. It's primarily we look, you know, within the corporation, i.e., Japanese corporations, and how they produce consumer goods. Whether it was automobiles, which was you know the kind of the uh, signature sort of statement uh, technology that, that the U.S. paid attention to, and that Japan paid attention to as well. But it was also electronics from TVs and and uh, you know the beginnings of uh, VCRs and and all of that kind of uh, consumer electronics. Electronic material, um, and also uh, semiconductor, sort of the, you know, the core uh, kind of business of the emerging uh, U.S. Uh, uh, personal computing industry. Um, so, all—all all of these things at these different levels were kind of affecting, you know, kind of the sense of the U.S.-Japanese relationship, and for an entity like Motorola. They were involved both at these larger national discussions about the import of Japan's rising economic importance, but also paying attention to those sort of within the factory things that revolved around uh, much more efficient, much more, uh, 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 the the production of much better products that were more appealing to consumers. So, for example, the perception, uh, eventually, the Japanese cars were more reliable than American automobiles, right, that would drive uh, American consumers to buy Japanese and not buy or, you know, be, be less disposed to buy U.S. automobiles. Um, so, how, you know, how do you, how do you rectify that? And so one of the responses... At that corporate kind of working level, was well. We need to borrow from. We need to understand. We need to to improve our own internal capacity to do the kinds of things that Japanese corporations are doing. Um, So that was sort of the kind of the you know kind of dynamic that was toggling back and forth between these sort of different registers of experience in the U.S.-Japanese relationship. Mm.
1: Wonderful. And so, globalization and the global are two words that um, are really important for your analysis. Um, You know, you even write about how uh, global satellite communications um, uh, helped make uh, the global into a way of life, into something more tangible and concrete um, rather than um, just a a metaphor. And so I was wondering if you could say something about uh, how the story of Iridium what it says about the global or globalization uh like what exactly does global mean
2: well it, obviously it is one of those those terms right that has room for a lot of different ways of characterizing it and different ways of being interpreted depending on different historical actors and their different positions right um and I think you know one of the things that the book emphasizes, which I think is distinctive of the late 80s and into the 90s, um, is that moment in historical time is one in which the US is the unquestioned uh, so-called lone superpower right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it's, I think, in that very particular historical context, that the global comes to mean something specific in the iridium case that gives um, the articulation of the global and how it is built up uh, through the 80s and into the 90s a very strong U.S. centric cast. Um, you know, a kind of of positioning that you know we if somebody kind of framed the present world in that way. Uh, that you know you would you would you know want to rethink that just given the the more multipolar kind of character of uh, international relationships, but there was something sort of fundamental to the U.S. centrism in the political order at that time. Uh, that gave glo- the globalization, right, the process of being global and the category of the global a very specific set of meanings. Um, and of course, you know, the emergence of communications technologies through the 80s, whether we're talking about the internet, um, um, cell phone developments, uh, or through via communication satellites. Um, you know, the, the, the thought of the global was in some sense, you know, very much in the air, uh, but it was a sort of realization towards the end of the 80s and into the 90s that the global could come to mean at least on one level of register with respect to the United States, um, creating these infrastructures in space uh, that did fully embrace the planet uh, in its totality, and not in a and in, in its totality, but also sort of instantaneously. Right, it was both a time and a spatial thing. Uh, in contrast to kind of prior moments, where yes, there were satellites in space, yes, there were undersea cables, uh, but you only were kind of getting either you know partial coverage or coverage that was done at a global coverage that was done at intermittent time intervals and that there was something to correlate between the you know creating a completely planetary instantaneous infrastructure with the development of kind of neoliberal market oriented capitalism that was kind of the signature move uh, that I highlight in the book and that I think is essential to kind of understanding in the 80s and the 90s.
0: Mm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Uh, one story that I thought really um, brought the global into um, like the level of the everyday was the launch of Iridium. Um, can you say something about like the, the press conference that, uh, that launched this endeavor?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a, right, it was a striking thing. I mean, in some ways, it's, and this goes back to the earlier comment about the Hollywood ishness of it, right? And um, the, in the sense that, you know, they were um, very conscious in a, in, a, in a way that we would recognize in our contemporary moment of the PR value of what they were doing, right? Um, and to do sort of simultaneous rollouts. Of the Iridium concept um, uh, in New York at at the uh, Hayden Planetarium, which is a you know kind of a world-renowned planetarium, um, uh, and also in other cities, including Beijing and Melbourne. Um, to kind of have the sort of coverage in these very um, significant uh, uh, marketplaces, whether, you know, uh, whether in the case of Beijing, you know, kind of representing, you know, the U.S.-Chinese relationship and our our hopes in an economic sense for that relationship or another Far East thing in Melbourne um, as a way of, of both, you know, kind of saturating, if you will, the world media environment with this narrative. Um, uh, and at the same time, Using it strategically as a tool to begin to develop uh, potential um, uh, a list of investors that who would come and kind of join in this this enterprise. Uh, but yes, it was you know from from the perspective certainly of that moment and even from the contemporary moment uh, something that had had a kind of a real ring to it. And I think you know part of you know what one wants to highlight there again is the way in which the complete global was an important sort of category in this effort from the very beginning, right? Uh, That one doesn't do this kind of rollout uh, if you're only thinking about a kind of partially global kind of service. Uh, it is you know kind of in the background this idea of complete globality that kind of drives this particular kind of PR approach uh, and the kind of glitz and the spin that went around with it and the and the media coverage that uh, uh, resulted from it
1: yeah I mean w- w- one of the things that's just so striking about your book is that um, the global is um, typically it's spoken in these like abstract terms um, but for you you've come across these historical actors that have like a very clear idea of what the global means. Um, and they, uh, you know, they, they make sure that their PR is global. They make sure that their, um, you know, their investors are global. Um, they, you know, they want to make this a company for the world. And uh, I think that's uh, one of the, um, uh, the really neat things about your book is just how these historical actors are um, grappling with and almost like giving meaning to the global.
2: Yeah, you know, we've emphasized in our talking so far uh, the you know kind of primarily the perspective of uh, Motorola, and its spin off uh, Iridium. Um, but you know, they they as they went through these processes, of course, they were fundamentally aided, first of all, by the U.S. government, who uh, also was kind of promoting this market-centric view of the world, and particularly the value to the U.S. government and its interests of having these multinational corporations be these fundamentally global or at least transnational actors, right? Uh, that this was a way of advancing U.S. interests. I think so. That, I mean, on one level, of course, that's not too, too surprising. There's a long history of that uh, in business uh, government relationships in the U.S. You know, that go back, you know, certainly to the 19th century. Um, but the, the the to me one of the more interesting things is how entities um, uh, of the United Nations were fundamentally captured by this perspective as well, right uh, that they came to see this kind of market centric way of organizing the economic order uh, of, of the world um, via the market as, Critical to advancing those kinds of uh, values and initiatives that the United Nations has said for, right? Which was fundamentally, right, to create some kind of conversation and balancing uh, of political power or redress of political power between developed and developing countries, right? So. That the UN as an entity would would see the market as the means by which to kind of fulfill these 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 goals for developing countries uh, was the, to me the more kind of striking element to the degree to which this market centric vision uh, became so fundamental to the time period that the book deals with.
1: Mm-hmm. So one aspect of that uh, market-centric vision or, um, you know, like the rise of neoliberalism um, or whatever, um, you know, you want to call it, was the story of Motorola University. Um, so I had no idea about um, what you call the corporate university movement. Uh, and uh, I was just shocked at how many corporations established these in-house universities um, with uh, you know like discrete departments um, uh, and actual curricula and things like that um, uh, to address knowledge production and circulation within the firm uh, and so uh, you you have a really uh, just striking statistic by the year two thousand there were two thousand corporate universities around the world and so um, can you just tell listeners? what exactly a corporate university is and does. Um, and um, what does it say about how knowledge um, was being reconceptualized in this period?
2: Well, uh, so of course, not all of these corporate universities were the same, right? They you know, different corporations gave different meaning to that term university. And, and instantiated it within their corporations in, in different ways. Um. But the, the you know the part of the reason to focus on Motorola University is just right kind of the 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 it, that it provides this kind of opening as you suggested right to kind of a reconfiguration of how knowledge uh, is is getting re, re refashioned uh, under this more market centric way of looking at the world um, and just fortuitously for the you know the case that I chose Motorola. Motorola was probably regarded as the kind of cynosure of of this whole movement, right? And the degree to which the corporation was committed to it, uh, the degree to which it implemented it, uh, and the kind of multifaceted sort of conception of what the university uh, could fundamentally do for the corporation in the condition of globalization as a fundamentally market-centric oriented kind of activity. Um, but, it, but it is, right? So, uh, you know, there, there's a, a kind of lo- longer history, as some of your listeners well know, uh, between academia, uh, and uh, the creation of uh, large corporations in the United States from the late 19th century through the 20th century, right? And I kind of share a little bit of that background in the book, uh, but that, the, the model that was happening and the kind of relationship and what it meant for both the integrity of the knowledge production exercise and the corporate role in the economic order, uh, were c- certainly kind of different than uh, what you know was experienced in the 1980s, um, and that you know Motorola's motivation for doing for creating this university um, was fundamentally connected to um, the problems that they saw in. Helping the corporation succeed under the condition of globalization, as it existed in the 1980s, and going back to our conversation about about uh, Japan and its sort of meaning uh, to the U.S. corporate world and to U.S. politics, um, it was to you know kind of say that these things that were happening in Japan within the corporation there uh, provided a insight that what corporations do, whether it's in a manufacturing sense or in terms of their organizational processes, uh, were 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 a knowledge problem, right? That one had to make the corporation itself an object of knowledge exploration and knowledge production, right, that it was the subject of what corporations should be looking at rather than, say, looking out to academia to, you know, developments in physics in some fashion or some field of engineering, although, of course, that continued to happen. But it was to put on an equal plane. Uh, the problem of understanding what goes into manufacturing, what exactly, how do we want to theorize manufacturing to get the most out of what we do when we manufacture uh, in an economic sense? Mm. Um, and that, of course, leads into, you know, ec- you know manufacturing, of course, Um is a kind of, uh, you know, kind of a complex system that also includes humans in the picture. Right. Um, So part of this theorizing is to theorize what it means to have humans in the system of manufacturing and how we want humans to perform. Uh, But you know, that, that, the framing of that problem, again, was very historically specific, right? It is in the context of markets and the elevation of individuals within the market context as the kind of points of reference around which we saw either, you know, kind of economic value, uh, uh, particular kinds of human rights values. Uh, of their insertion into particular cultural contexts and how those cultural contexts poten- potentially affected the corporation. So as much as you know, how you might you know, kind of figure out how to kind of systematize machines or, or processes associated with machines, Uh, one also had to kind of theorize the human within that context. And that theorizing was fundamentally related to neoliberal ideology about the individual and their role in uh, a neoliberal market order.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, flag for our listeners um, just the scale of the Motorola University. Um, So at one point it had 500 employees. Uh, and it had 12 physical campuses, um, three in the US and, um, the rest elsewhere. Uh, and then it also gave, Motorola, um, this like really interesting regulatory power in certain countries. Um, so in emerging countries, Motorola University would actually like train uh, um, suppliers or even um, uh, like government officials, um, uh, especially in Russia and China. Uh, and so it, this is it, this is just for me a really fascinating part of like the modern corporation.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's right when you <laughs> see that, it is kind of mind-blowing, right?
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and and I, I, th- I, I don't know whether initially they chose the, the word university to, you know, kind of establish some kind of distance between the university um, and, you know, kind of give it the aura of what we usually associate with the typical university, right? That there's a kind of independent space in which knowledge and knowledge relationships are being investigated and dealt with, um, as opposed to a university embedded within a corporation. But it seems that that use of the word university provided some value to Motorola uh, when it was working in these other places to see it as not through and through um, uh, dedicated to Motorola's specific corporate interests, but there was some distinction there between the knowledge activities of the university uh, and and Motorola corporate interests that would enable uh, people who are associated with Motorola University to do these kinds of things, training suppliers. Not too surprising, right? That's a, uh, a you know a, a fairly straight kind of economic transaction. Transaction. Um, but in terms of, of, of schooling, um, uh, you know, people who worked for other governments in the pro, you know, processes and, val, and particular approaches to regulation, uh, that, you know, that is kind of surprising. Mm-hmm.
1: And so in spite of all of the enthusiasm and ambition and globalism, um, you know, Iridium, didn't work it it didn't it didn't succeed uh it went bankrupt in the um uh, the late 90s and that's um you know as you've already mentioned the the reason why you were able to get access to all their records what happened why did it not work
2: uh you know that's actually a kind of complicated story right i think at at the and I, i guess one can highlight sort of two components right um well, three, I think. Um, clearly, the the um, technological development of cell phones through the 1990s was, you know, beginning to to uh, have an impact on a system like Iridium that was offering global service. Um, cell phones through the 1990s had moved from that point where I mentioned earlier, where they're you know pretty much limited to major metropolitan areas, to having a much broader geographic sweep. Uh, and you began by the late you know 1990s to be able to make a call from you know someplace in Europe to the United States uh, without using something like a satellite phone, right? Uh, so that's one element of it. Um, Another element was that you know they had this system was technologically complex, um, and they were and they were you know rushing to 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 complete it, and there were a lot of loose ends in how the system performed um and so the you know the kind of call quality um uh you know was was not as high as they wanted it to be uh when they rolled the system out but i think the 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 preeminent reason that this that this you know kind of uh, uh, collapsed in an economic sense um was just the kind of bank structure that they had sort of surrounding the enterprise um and the the uh, requirements for these various loans that they had taken out to complete the system uh, required them to meet certain uh, subscriber targets and certain payments at certain times, which were very sort of aggressive um, um, in the in the months to you know uh, uh, year, first year of the, of the effort, once it launched. Uh, and they just couldn't meet those very aggressive requirements, and that was what you know kind of pushed them over the edge into into bankruptcy. But there were kind of a complex of reasons working together. But I see the banking issue as the uh, kind of primary thing that made that made it difficult for them. Um, and I think in one in one sense, you know, that is su- supported in part by the fact that the you know Iridium did emerge from bankruptcy, uh, was reconstituted as a new company. And that new company is still in business today and recently launched a whole new constellation of satellites um, and seems to be doing uh, just fine financially.
1: Yeah. So I wanted to talk about that, uh, kind of like the afterlife of this network, um, because um, near the end of your story, uh, Iridium sort of makes a comeback, um, or at least its system does. um, And it's because of the war on terror and the US's, the U.S. military and media's um, reliance on satellite cell phone networks to communicate to and from remote places in the Middle East. And so this is a really interesting twist uh, to the end of your story. Can you say a, a bit on this?
2: yeah i mean it was kind of in a sense a kind of historical accident in a sense that iridium survived at least in my judgment right and that historical accident was you know 9 11 and the aftermath of 9 11 um and the the movement of u.s troops to to uh, iraq and to afghanistan um so um and and prior to um, or at the you know dur- during the time that Iridium was r- arranging for launch uh, and to begin initiation of the system, they'd already been in conversation with the U.S. military about you know having a contract with Iridium and. Um, um, and I think as I you know, kind of uh, develop in the book, created a special gateway, which was one of the means of connecting the constellation to Earth-based systems of, of telecommunication, uh, a separate uh, gateway for the U.S. military. And again, this comes out of, remember, the division of Motorola that creates this whole thing and creates this this large commercial enterprise called Iridium, was initially uh, you know kind of embedded in U.S., Uh, military and national security work. So they were uh, constantly through the 1990s, uh, you know, having conversations with with DOD, a Department of Defense, um, uh, on use of the iridium system when it went up. So um, it just so happened that... um, you know, just before, as, as Iridium was going into bankruptcy, uh, that they uh, arranged the contract, they finalized the contract to, to have uh, military use of the system. Um, and I think it was sort of that contract and then the accident of, uh, historical accident of 9 11 and the aftermath and the need for better communications in Afghanistan and Iraq that literally kind of saved the system. Uh, because there was that you know basic seed money coming in to sustain the uh, ability of the corporation to get started, reorient itself, and begin to move into other areas beyond U.S. government support.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it made me think that the conversations about neoliberalism uh, need to be more connected to conversations about the U.S. military, just in the sense that this like market this this. This corporation that like runs on, um, you know, like the ideology of like this like, global marketplace um, was uh, in the end rescued by the U.S. military.
2: Right. That, I mean, that's you know sort of this kind of interconnection you know emerges more strongly in the 1990s, but it's a hallmark of uh, the post 9/11 world where there's just you know kind of multiple sort of intersections and interpenetrations between. The market world and the military different than existed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, and uh, you know, one um, other marker of this, you know, kind of beyond iridium that I think people are well familiar with, of course, is the global positioning system, which was created fundamentally as a military tool, but now is so deeply integrated. Uh, into everyday life, um, that you know, that merger between the military framework and our sense of, of uh, uh, you know, our identities, um, you know, in, in in the everyday world, are are practically inseparable.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually something that I spoke about with uh, another guest on this this show, um, Bill Rankin, yeah. uh, a couple years ago. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think that th- these connections um, are really interesting, and I think need to be worked out um, uh, much more in the the literature. And so we're getting to the end of our conversation. And your book is definitely not, uh, you know, like a what is to be done manifesto, but you deal with a lot of issues that um, are really central to life in twenty nineteen. And so I was wondering if you could say something about how your book. And the story that you tell might inform our present moment, um, whether it's about things like um, you know globalization, um, national security, communications, and information.
2: Um, uh, you know that that's always a tough one. Um, um, it's a very what, I'll, I'll you know, kind of say this. I mean, one one of the things that also is kind of happening that's kind of related to the book is, uh, you know, as a museum curator, I've uh, uh, designed an exhibition that will go up in the next few years on the topic of globalization. Mm. Um, satellite communications is a, an important sort of element of that gallery. But in doing an exhibition, you have to think about, you know, how to tell these narratives uh, to an audience. Of uh, a general audience, and for our museum, typically we're talking about the the, the material is the structured in such a way to be easily accessible uh, by students in middle school. Um, and I think you know what what I, I, I've tried to do in that exhibition, of course, is to kind of highlight these broader global infrastructural issues, so that these move from you know for for you know, students who come in and, you know, think about, well, you know, I just, you know, had a video chat with somebody in the Philippines, say, uh, and it was like incredibly easy and, you know, they don't even think about how it happened. So it's one of the purposes of the exhibition is to kind of make visible many of these things. We just are happy to see invisible, right? Uh, To let them know that there is actually a structure and a set of politics Um, around the creation of these kinds of infrastructures. The other thing that the exhibit seeks to do, sort of similarly along those lines, especially for... Um, our, our U.S. visitors, uh, is to let them know that these older issues of, that come out of colonialism and post-colonialism have not disappeared. There are distinct differences in, in power between uh, the developed and developing world that are fundamental, these questions about access. Uh, and availability to the tools, like communication tools, to shape what local communities wish to do according to their own kind of values and perceptions of the future, right? Um, so on that, it's, it's you know, I've kind of turned, I guess you will, the the material in the book to kind of creating that kind of message. Uh, for museum audiences so that they can begin to more effectively sort of engage some of the submerged, not quite visible set of issues that attach to kind of global scale infrastructures and what they mean when they're inserted into this longer history of inequality that's part of our world.
1: That's really cool. Uh, I, I hope to be able to visit uh, that exhibit. And I mean, it's also, I, I I can't imagine how challenging it would be to, Represent things like networks, because you know like these objects they they only tell us so much it's it's in how they're connected to other objects around the world. so um, I imagine that's a big challenge as a curator on this topic.
2: well, you you and your listeners will just have to come and see, yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> um, so you're obviously very busy with the Smithsonian and um, your curating work. Um, Are you working on another book project right now?
2: I'm I'm starting to. It's, again, on the topic of globalization, but I want to kind of actually building off what I was just describing to you, um, work with uh, colleagues around the mall who work in different kind of disciplines and subject areas that we might collectively talk about globalization through a material lens. So all the different Smithsonian museums, as you can well imagine, kind of approach this sort of question of what the global is in in different ways, but we want to um, kind of use objects as a way to kind of gain insight into how one can think about this from different disciplinary perspectives, uh, as well as tell different stories uh, for for our visiting publics at the the different museums.
1: That's also a really cool project. I look forward to it. Um, I wanna thank you again for uh, speaking with me today.
2: Uh thank you, Dexter. It was fun. Thanks.